Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Right, so as you've heard, as we've been discussing, the Alberta government is uh, implementing some changes to policing. Specifically, they are banning the practice of carding, uh, but they are going to still allow the practice of street checks, which they, they draw a distinction between the two. There are going to be some new rules around street checks, as it says in the press release. These interactions will be voluntary, and officers must make that clear at the outset of the interaction that citizens have no obligation to provide their personal information or answer questions. So the distinction here being that that uh, uh, the practice of carding is is just really, truly random and arbitrary. Stopping individuals on the street and asking them for their identification or personal information. Street check would at least ostensibly be connected to uh, something that police are investigating. But there still seems to be some, some gray area there. So what's the concern around carding, though? Is it a step in the direction that that's been banned? And what do we make of some of these other changes? Well, joining us uh, for some thoughts on all of this, very pleased to welcome to the program, uh, Sharon Polsky, who is uh, president of uh, Privacy and Access Council of Canada, also uh, a vice president with the Rocky Mountain Civil Liberties Association. Sharon, great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Rob. This is a tremendous change that's finally, finally happening in this province. But I I have to go through the guidelines very closely to see really just what is changing. Yeah, the devil's in the details, as they say, but it, it certainly appears to be a, a step in the right direction. You know, as you say, though, this has been an issue for, for quite some time, and the province has been pressured to, to address this. Why is this such a concern? Why is, why is the practice of carding so concerning? Well, it's, the whole thing started in Toronto. I mean, they have a serious gang problem. And, and when you've got a group of people who cause a lot of trouble, so the police respond... But the the people happen to be of color or of a certain group. It's easy for them to say, we are being targeted. Mm-hmm. And that has happened in a lot of places. Los Angeles has a gang, massive gang problems. So they've put in all sorts of technology to anticipate where crime might happen. The problem is, if you look historically at my block, there's a lot of crime. So the police come here. They're focusing on my block where there has been crime, which means they're ignoring everywhere else. I mean, the the optics are terrible. The police can't win. Uh, And police have always gotten better results when they know their community. Long ago, 100 years ago, you'd have a cop walking the beat. They'd know the shopkeeper. They'd know who's where. They could talk to people. No no problem at all. And they, they knew who was in the neighborhood and who belonged and who who was up to no good because people trusted them. The courts, the lawyers, the case law, that has made it almost impossible because police, I mean, I I look at the the criminal code in 1981, it was just over a thousand pages. Now it's almost 3,000 pages. 
the paperwork that goes along with it, all of the, the protocols, police in many respects, their hands have been tied. They used to have discretion. Now they have to follow rules uh, so closely that, you know, so, so they're considered, they consider themselves third-class citizens because they have to abide by so many more rules than everybody else. And if they don't do what we expect them to, they get criticized. If they do do, other people criticize them. They're in a no-win. In the meantime, when it comes to carding and street checks, depending where you go, those terms are used interchangeably. So is anything really changing, or is it a game of semantics? Um, And there's one in here, by the way, when it comes to it's voluntary, it always has been. And police have always had to tell you why they stop you, whether it's they pull you over in your car or they say, hey, you in the black jacket, come here, I have a question for you. They're supposed to, they always were supposed to tell you why they were stopping you. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting, as you say, that, you know, the, the lines do get blurred between what's considered carding and what's considered street checks. And these aren't even official names. I think in Calgary, uh, Calgary police use the term, I think it's check-in or check-up slips or, or something along those lines. So they don't even call it carding, is my understanding. Okay. Um, so do you, I mean, is there a, a meaningful distinction here between the two, as you can see it? I, I'd argue that there isn't. I remember when the whole uh, fruit frost started in Toronto, and our then minister in El- in Edmonton was asked about it, and they said, "Oh, there, we don't have a carding problem in Alberta at all because it's not called carding." I mean, come on, that's splitting hairs. And and you look at the guidelines. It's, uh, there, there's one that says an interaction with a member of the public is not considered within the context of the guideline, when observations are made and recorded when there is no interaction with a person. Uh, So observations are made and recorded, but there's no interaction. So I see that person in the black jacket and the blue jeans across the street. I've dealt with them before. So I can, what, note that I've dealt with them and take a note and card them. And uh, although I've had no contact with them, this is a little bit peculiar. It is. So the idea now, and and as you said, there there were already rules in place regarding these interactions, but the idea that police are going to have to be more explicit in letting people know that they are not required to to turn over this information, that this is voluntary. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, A, how do we hold police to that? And and B, is is that a, a, a sufficient safeguard? I would argue that when somebody in uniform says EU, whether it's because of what we see on TV or some people's lived experience in other countries where the police will shoot first and ask questions later, and they come here and they're living with that trauma, uh, they're not going to readily trust that they can voluntarily walk away. There is a power imbalance just because somebody in uniform, whether it's at at a traffic stop or at the border, they have the power to make your life a living hell. Um, So it's more than just teaching the police how to behave, or I'd say there's a a lot of um, healing that has to be done in the community to learn that, yes, you really can trust people. I've been involved in in, uh, workshops with immigrants 
And there was one in particular, a former chief of police uh, from Calgary was speaking at it. And people, they, they, you could see them move to the back of the room when he entered. They were afraid just by his presence because of a uniform. Mm-hmm. Now, one thing that no one's talking about, and I think it's important to keep in mind, is when one tool is eliminated, it's usually replaced by something else. And we've seen it all too often with the encroachment, the embracing of high technology as if that is going to solve all of the ills of society and criminality. So whether it is facial recognition on the street poles, the the light standards that in Calgary are perfectly capable of having the cameras and the microphones, by the way, Um, or if it's in vehicles or the video doorbells that police are encouraging so many people to put on their homes to assist the police in their work. Uh, The technology is remarkably invasive. And once it's in place, we'll have an even harder time finding out if it's being used on us. Uh, and there's also, the, you know, just the, the general principle that we, we've got charter rights uh, that pertain to, for example, arbitrary detention. I mean, it's one thing if police are looking for witnesses. Did you see what happened here? This car crash occurred or this robbery occurred. But the idea that the police would have blanket power to just randomly and arbitrarily essentially detain people. If, if you're in a situation where you're not allowed to just walk away, that, that's that's essentially arbitrary detention. Does carding and, and street checks, do those cross into that territory in your view i'd argue that that's being asked uh to come here i've got some questions did you see someone in a green jacket go by that's not an arbitrary detention and they can Mm -hmm. uh stop you in uh it's it's an investigative detention it's not you're not under arrest you're not quite free to go but people don't know the rules and their rights and I'd argue that there's utility for the state in making sure that people don't know their rights. So I put that back onto a lot of people, and this isn't victim blaming or, or shaming, but it's it's incumbent on each of us as a member of a free and democratic society to learn what our rights and our responsibilities are. And keep in mind, the flip side of rights is responsibilities. Our responsibility is to know what our rights are. That's an important point. Sharon, we'll leave it there. We'll see how this all plays out. As you say, we'll, we'll have to see what's in the details of these changes. But uh, certainly appreciate your insight, and thanks for making some time for us here today. Anytime, Rob. Thank you for covering this. All the best. Important. Yeah, I appreciate you making some time for us here. Take care. Uh, Sharon Polsky, uh, so there you go, Vice President with the uh, Rocky Mountain Civil Liberties Association, also President uh, of Privacy and Access Council of Canada. So uh, her thoughts on, on you know what the issues are here, what these changes possibly represent, the caveat being maybe the devil is in the details here, but it uh, looks to be a positive change. All right, welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Breckenridge with you. One of the frustrations uh, expressed by Alberta's Chief Medical Officer of Health yesterday was just our lack of data. We don't know as much about what we're dealing with at the moment that we did a few months ago. And as cases continue to rise and hospitalizations continue to rise, that's a worrying trend. I mean, early on, Alberta was certainly a leader when it came to testing and with that, the, the tracing. Uh, but we've fallen off, I think, in, in both respects. Tracing is, is a mess at the moment. And, and testing isn't where even the government had suggested it would be. 
Yeah, the uh, province had talked about doing 20,000 tests a day. We seem to be somewhere in the range of 12,000 to 13,000 a day. And now, in fairness, it's it's been a much more targeted testing approach. And so we've scaled back on some of other other testing strategies to ensure that we have the capacity to deal with the, the surges that we've seen recently. But what if Alberta were able to do not just 20,000 or even 50,000? What if we were doing 100,000 tests a day? What if Canada was doing a million tests a day? What would that tell us? What, what options would that give us that we don't have now? As other provinces move to various uh, lockdown measures, it almost kind of feels inevitable that Alberta's on the same path. What if there was a different way? There's a really fascinating op-ed in the Globe and Mail today, looking at how a strategy of mass testing can help us avoid those kinds of stricter public health measures. Joining us to talk more about this issue, one of the authors of this piece, David Junker, is a professor and chair of McGill University's Department of Biomedical Engineering. Professor Junker, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Well, thank you for having me. Um, the idea of doing uh, mass testing, it, it certainly doesn't seem to be uh, on the radar of, of any provinces at the moment. Why, why do you think that is? Well, the, of course, one of the, the requirements for mass testing is to have the availability of tests and, uh, and, uh, and the operational to run these tests. And both of these, I think, are still lacking at this point. Yeah, there was even a story recently that Manitoba was running short of the little, I think they're called pipette uh, tips. So there, yeah. there's a lot of resources necessary to, to conduct these, these PCR tests. So that, that's, that, that's a big challenge, isn't it? Right, exactly. And so, so the, the, the current testing regime uses a centralized test and, and with the cases surging everywhere, actually, and with many people using the same type of approaches, it creates great pressure on the supply chains for all the, the reagents, even like very common items such as pipette tapes or the nasal swabs, which were also, I think, a big bottleneck in the beginning. And so there are actually alternatives now that, are, that have been developed around the world for, uh, for the same type of PCR testing. For example, there's the possibility of spit tests where people spit in a tube or, um, or even rapid diagnostic tests with a pregnancy type test that can do these, uh, this type of testing. But, uh, and where we see that this kind of uh, the, the regular testing that could really help quell down the, the, the progression of the disease, where well, this has been maybe the, uh, illustrated in the most convincing manner, is in a number of American universities where they have set up these mass testing uh, systems where students and, and faculty who are on campus need to test uh, on a weekly, uh, weekly or bi weekly uh, manner and then have in a self tested manner so there's no. A health professional needed, which is also one of the bottlenecks we're having here. So people go to a test site, they either self-swab or spit in a tube, put it in a little envelope, and then that is being sent for central analyzers, and they get then the results uh, 24 hour, uh, within 24 hours. And so by doing so, then they can particularly also catch people who are asymptomatic and, and who can then often spread this disease. And what we're seeing in a number of these uh, university campuses is that actually the disease prevalence there is lower even than seemingly than in the surroundings around these university campus, which really uh, underlines that these uh, massive testing regimes can have a huge impact in terms of bringing the cases down and also actually having a much uh, a more normal kind of interaction. You still need masks, but by, of course, uh, uh, quelling the test down, you can go much more, have much more activities uh, that, that are, can be pursued. So we, we, we're familiar with the PCR test that does either the, the nasal pharyngeal swab or the, the throat swab. In some cases, that gets shipped off to a lab. The reagents are used, and 
and and yeah. that's that's how we're doing this. So it's resource intensive, and you know, even best case scenario, it's it can be 24, 48 hours to get test results. So, as you mentioned, there there, there are other options that are becoming increasingly, I guess, viable and, and available when it comes to testing. So, what what could we be using beyond the the PCR test that we're currently relying on? All right, so like uh, so, the PCR test that is intensive, and so what what they're doing on campuses, if you want to scale that to Canada, it would create. A, it's not saying it's impossible; it would be very challenging. And, and so the alternative to that are these rapid diagnostic tests, so antigen tests. So these are run; they would be run like a pregnancy test, which also potentially opens up the opportunity for running them at home. But uh, there might be some caveats there. And then the great benefit of this test is you can have a result in 15 minutes. So, you know, when we're speaking about contact tracing and isolating rapidly when people are, the, uh, are positive, this, of course, gives you the win, gain, gain you the greatest amount of time. Now, one of the concerns initially was that these tests are not sensitive enough. But I think that is actually not a big, a big limitation and might almost be sometimes uh, almost turn into an advantage, especially since they're fast. Because when we get infected, there's only a small period when we're actually infectious where we can also infect other people, which drives these, uh, these, these epidemic cycles. And so this, what we're now finding, the latest results for this rapid uh, antigen test is that when at the phase where we have high viral count, where we can infect others, they are really good to actually detect this phase. And so by basically increasing then the testing frequency, we can be very, we could very efficiently capture people when they get infectious and so prevent them from actually infecting others. Or even if we miss one person that, and then starts infecting others, then we have many chances of catching the other people who are infected. But with the current PCR testing where we only sample so rarely, this is very difficult, especially when we have all these disease. Now, why don't we have them yet in, in, in our houses? Well, the technology is still fighting to get there. So you see the first, I mean, Canada has now, uh, after actually some public uh, pressure, uh, pivoted and, and accepted to, uh, to, um, to approve rapid tests. And, uh, and they have actually done a good job in securing now 20 million, I think, from Abbott Bio, so one of the rapid tests, which is actually in, in one review has a very good test performance, as well a few millions of BD Veritor tests. But these are, if we speak about screening testing, there's two issues that remain. One of them is that all the current tests approved still need a, a, a health profession for swabbing. So it means you can't redo it at home. You couldn't do it at a school, for example. And then the second uh, limitation is still the number of tests that we are receiving is way, way too small. And this is where, um, this is where we, on one hand, we miss the opportunity. I mean, I think if, if we had signaled early on that we we're willing to get these tests and, and encourage the private sector to really think about developing the kinds of tests that could be run by saliva, that could be self-tested, we might actually have much uh, earlier, earlier availability of these tests already, or maybe some of these tests already now, but, but there was general reluctance, I would say, in Canada and globally in, in, in moving in that direction. And industry, of course, they first wanted to make sure that their test would be approved so that they actually could yeah. make a return on their investment. And now where we might still catch up some time, and I think that's an opportunity that, that we would have to develop on a global scale, is, is, go, is, is develop this test under an open source access. So one of the great successes, I think, in, in COVID-19, and we haven't maybe had to win, but one of the great successes has been science. And the reason why this has been so successful is because everyone very quickly publishes all the results, shares it with everyone, and so we can all learn from how the virus is and, and, and understand how it's transmitted, who gets sick, and so forth. 
Now, when we come to testing, we all rely on the private sector, which can develop the test, but they all, re- they all develop the same test, but all in isolation, and they're all reinventing the wheel, basically. So if we could share, open that up, and share the best practices, we could really, uh, really accelerate this method and also make it available to us and benefit, of course, from everyone's expertise and also make a test that could be available everywhere. Now, of course, that would imply some challenges. It, really, it would really imply a different uh, paradigm in how we would manufacture. And we really have to shift our paradigm also in how we tackle this disease. And I was just hearing a podcast about the Second World War when Canada... Was, respond, was entering the war, they, they, they were ramping up the production of, of many of, of all their infrastructure and, and military equipment. Well, they, they created 28 crown corporations, I, I heard, which collectively actually produced more military vehicles than Germany, uh, Japan, and Italy combined. But if we take that kind of mindset and say, hey, we need this test, this is our national goal, then we could actually produce them in a much faster way uh, because we take away a lot of the risk for industry also by securing them. And and so maybe this is something that we could envision, but maybe the first step that we need to do, I think, at this point is make a task force to really evaluate the different approaches. And even for testing today, I was reading that, um, you know, every province, we have these rapid tests, but every province seems to be now having to approve and validate them on their own. And this is really where now a national plan could help a lot, where someone would centralize the validation, optimization, and, 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 and use of these tests. Because there's a rapid test that we're having today, which still require health professionals, where to deploy them, in which context, where they're more efficient, and, and how efficient are they, and which kind of samples. So these, these are questions that, you know, that a coordination would greatly help the, 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 the delivery of, or the, the implementation of these tests. So, yeah. So the, the, yeah, I think in short, there's there seems to be a real lack of urgency at the moment. That even though there's there's more ingenuity that's necessary, maybe to get us to where we need to be. In the short term, though, there are there are certainly improvements we could make, aren't there, when it comes to to our testing regime? And that's that's where sort of the urgency and the prioritizing comes in. Yes, exactly, and and, and that's where I think you know the a national clear message. Uh, on, on how to prioritize. So, so we, have, we have this task force for vaccines and for therapeutics. And so they, they provide guidelines that can harmonize also the efforts among the provinces. And, and, and of course, this has and, you know, the, the fact that Canada healthcare decision made at the provincial level makes it particularly challenging in a pandemic like this, where we see different, different rules in different provinces, different recommendations, different places. And so one province locks down, another province has more cases but doesn't lock down. And, and then maybe the one lockdown works, but then because the other province is not closed and the cases come in from there. So, so this is a really big challenge. Having said that, still having a clear message, having a clear message on how this test needs to be implemented, when we could use this test, and also, you know, losing the national level to anticipate, anticipate what the needs might be, how the disease might evolve, how the capacity might be better allocated, and, and also then team, like maybe, you know, have the resources shared between provinces so that we can help one another and, and basically uh, try to develop or, or unleash the solidarity that is between the people. And so, so there I still, I still think that even at, at this time, having this, this, this um, task force to, to, to help coordinate all these efforts on testing and also on, on basically studying how transmission really occurs, because this is also, you know, we have lots of transmission we really don't know 
what are the main drivers of transmission right. in many cases. Yeah. So, and again, rapid tests could help a lot for that because when you quickly get the results out from the person, you can really start to trace where the transmission is happening and, and then have a, a better health, uh, public health policy to actually uh, curtail transmission where it's happening uh, the most. Right, so, yeah, so uh, tracing certainly has to go hand-in-hand with, with a testing approach, doesn't it? Yes, yeah, so, yeah, so, and, and, and so these studies, I mean, they can be done, but now, now you know, if I, I want to do a study, there's no coordination about how these studies are being done on a national scale. There's no uh, really prioritizing of what we should be studying. And so at this point, well, with, with the testing now falling so much behind, of course, we are almost, you know, we, we're, we're reacting a little bit blind. Yeah. And because at best of times, the tests, the tests just tell you what happened in the past in terms of infection, right? Because it takes a few days to incubate. So, you know, and, and the more delays there's between the, the time you're testing and the time you get the result, the more you only see events that happen even further back. And so having, of course, like rapid tests, which can give you the answer very quickly, and when you run them frequently, it would greatly help understand the, the spread and also then anticipate the response and respond much faster and more effectively to, to, to the outbreaks as they're happening. Well, we'll leave it there. Uh, Professor Junker, your piece, uh, it's up today at theglobeandmail.com if uh, folks want to read more. But thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Really appreciate this. Well, well thanks for having me. All right. All the best. Take care. Uh, that is uh, David Junker at uh, McGill University. He's a professor and chair of the Department of Biomedical Engineering. Uh, so wrote this piece in the Globe and Mail today with uh, Donald Shepard from McGill's Department of Microbiology and Immunology, uh, saying that this, this is an alternative. There's no question that we need to try to get the virus under control. But this is, I think, a much more attractive alternative, isn't it, to the idea of lockdown measures. So we got to make it a priority, though. I mean, that's step one. And, and I think, unfortunately, it just it hasn't been the priority it needs to be. We, we've been slow when it comes to uh, encouraging the development of new tests, approving new tests, acquiring new tests, distributing new tests, making use of new tests. And at the moment, we're just kind of limited. We're, we're very responsive at the moment in terms of, okay, somebody's symptomatic, go in, get a test. And maybe we can figure out, well, who are your close contacts? I guess we can test those people too. And it, it's, it's necessary, obviously, but it's not really helpful in, in the long run when it comes to containing these numbers. So doing way more testing, you know, in terms of much more of a screening approach, that's the way to get out of this, to sort of test our way out of this situation. It's ambitious. All right, welcome back. Rob Breckenridge with you. Let's talk about CERB, the Canada Emergency Response Benefit, which I guess we're talking about in the past tense. Uh, CERB, as we knew it, has ended. Uh, but the idea of CERB was was pretty straightforward, uh, that, that the... Initial months of the pandemic were incredibly disruptive to a lot of people and their employment, and this was meant to to help people bridge that gap. The decision was made, obviously, to try to expedite CERB as much as possible to get that money out the door as quickly as possible. And, and so in all of that, there, there may have been some people that, that received CERB that, that shouldn't have. And so, there, look, there's a process in place to deal with all of that. But the story uh, that's making the rounds today suggests that there's a problem on a much bigger scale. So a few media outlets have picked up on this. Uh, now the opposition have picked up on this. So it's starting to snowball. And maybe it's important to just kind of get to the heart of all of this. The story today is that more than 800,000 ineligible people received CERB. 
a total of nearly $1.7 billion. That's a lot of people and a lot of money. And if true, that's a big problem. But if true are kind of the key words here. Because if we really take a step back and look at how CERB was functioning, how it operated, there's no reason to believe that that's actually the case. So how did we get to this point where we've got now this very serious uh, allegation that, that doesn't appear to have any merit to it? Well, joining us uh, to talk more about all of this is uh, somebody who's very much been paying attention to the story today. In fact, uh, wrote about it to herself, Dr. Lindsay Tedds. Associate Professor and Scientific Director of Fiscal and Economic Policy at the School of Public Policy, University of Calgary. Professor Ted, it's great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Oh, thank you very much for having me. All right. So I would imagine when you first saw this story, um, you had at the very least a raised eyebrow, I would imagine. Oh, yes, for sure. I mean, if somebody is able at this point in time to put that accurate of a number on fraud on a benefit program that just ended a month ago. I mean, this is some pretty good crystal balling. Um, but the interesting part about the headline is it's factually incorrect. And it doesn't take long to go into the tax system and explain it to understand why that that headline is just inflammatory. Right. So, I mean, look, I, I mean, it is possible, obviously, that there are some who received CERB that, that shouldn't have, right? Oh, without a shadow of a doubt. We have this yeah. with all benefit programs, and we already have some good RCMP investigations going on as organized crime was, in fact, involved with stealing CERB checks from individuals. But this story is very specific. It's, it's 823,850 people. So that, that's, it seems to give the story more credibility because it seems so exact. It seems like such a specific number. But what does that number actually represent? Okay, so what ended up happening was um, in the House of Commons, a question was asked that CRA followed up on. And the question that was asked was simply, with regards to recipients of the CERB, what was the number of recipients um, by uh, income tax bracket based on the 2019 tax filings? Um, and so that number, 823580, is the number of people who received CERB but didn't file 2019 taxes. But there is no general legal requirement for a CERB beneficiary to file taxes because for the most part, the only individuals who are required by law to file taxes are individuals who have a balance owing to CRA. So just because they didn't file doesn't mean they didn't have earnings. Uh, it just means that they weren't required to cut a check to CRA in 2019. I guess it's also worth noting here, even though a lot of people went through CRA to apply for CERB, CERB was not actually administered by the Canada Revenue Agency, was it? No. So CERB is administered by Services Canada. There just happened to be two portals. One, you could apply for CERB directly through Services Canada, just like you do with employment insurance, or you could have used your CRA My account to apply for the CERB. And again, this number actually only applies the numbers that that were in response to this actually were only related to those individuals who applied through the CRA portal and not through the Services Canada. So again, this is only a portion of the CERB recipients. And the CERB eligibility was was quite clear, and I guess you'd be hard-pressed to, to find anything there that specifies a requirement that one must have filed a tax return. Yeah, no, that that is correct. Um, and in fact, you know, it, it, 
you if you had earned a minimum of five thousand dollars of income either in the last 12 months or in 2019 you can qualify for the you could have qualified for the serve had you earned zero dollars in 2019 but five thousand dollars in the first three or four or five months of 2020 and still be eligible for serb and not have filed taxes in 2019 all of that is perfectly legal and nothing nefarious about that kind of situation now, I understand you, you've been in touch, I, I think, with, with one of the reporters who wrote about this. Um, do, do you get the sense maybe that there's, there's an opportunity here to, to set the record straight? Or, or how did this sort of take on this, this life of its own? Well, I mean, I read the headline in the National Post, um, and I certainly responded to that and wrote a detailed blog post, I assume. I mean, the, the article in the National Post actually didn't have a byline associated with it. Nobody really knew who the author was. I then received uh, several emails um, from Black Locks, where I assume the story started, but I do not subscribe to Black Locks, so I, I'm, I'm not entirely sure. But yes, um, Tom Kaczynski, with his name, uh, Tom, he he mailed me uh, trying to um, trying to set the record straight. But in fact, he seems, simply does not seem to understand how the CERB works, how the tax system works, um, and what were what are the requirements on individuals to file taxes. And we have to be incredibly careful that we don't say because you didn't file taxes means that you are um, uh, you, you are breaking the law you're not eligible for benefits or anything like that because that is in fact not true and, and demonstrates a, a clear lack of understanding of our tax system right and you know, look i mean the tax system's complicated and you know and and, and you know that and, and people struggle mm -hmm. to to understand i, I think all, all of the nuances of it would have been easy enough i suppose to just kind of roll your eyes and say well this story completely misses the mark and and you know move on with your day but why is it important you think to you know on something like this to, to set the record straight the CERB was such an important program to supporting Canadians through a, um, a, an economic contraction, an economic condition that we have never faced. To suggest that individuals who absolutely needed that money to bridge them between um, employment or uh, during the pandemic, hours lost, sickness, all of that kind of stuff, is just really demonstrating a lack of understanding of the huge shock that individuals went through. And it is important that we make sure that we understand that people who are receiving benefits um, are owed these benefits under the eligibility criteria and legislation that we have passed. And they should never be stigmatized in the way that this article attempted to do, um, especially during uh, a situation that none of us have ever faced before. And I think that we all agree we don't want to face it again. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we'll leave it there. Uh, Professor Ted's appreciate making some time for us here today. Really appreciate the insight on this. Thank you, Rob. Appreciate it. All right. Take care. Uh, that's uh, Lindsay Teds at the University of Calgary School of Public Policy, associate professor and director, uh, scientific director of fiscal and economic policy. So that's why, in her view, it's important to understand this. You, you can quibble with CERB, whether it's the right response. Was it too much, too little? Should we have gone about it a different way? Right. That's all legit. And, and certainly there's there's going to be examples we're going to find, um, you know, where, where people received CERB that shouldn't have. You know, maybe they applied and they, they didn't know that they didn't qualify. 
Uh, maybe there were those, as she pointed out. There were examples where you know people were trying to scam the system, and it's important to to get to the bottom of those. The idea here that, that there that was that this was widespread, that over eight hundred thousand people received serve that shouldn't have, and we're talking you know upwards getting close to two billion dollars, that would be a big deal. But as she says, that that's clearly not the case here, because all that number refers to are SERB recipients who haven't filed income tax returns. And there was not a requirement to have filed an income tax return in order to receive SERB. It was not administered through the CRA. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.